This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right. Hello, and welcome back to a Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Thomas podcast. Had to think about it for a little bit because I'm like, John, which day do we usually do? We we we're doing Wednesday for a little bit. Now we're on Tuesday. Um, no baseball uh, t- uh, to watch right now, but you know what? Thankfully, the Chicago White Sox and the New York Mets are giving us all kinds of daily content. I, I am 100% here for it. John, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I like that they're giving us content in entirely different directions. The White Sox are doing all the things you'd expect the Mets to do, whereas the Mets are just like, no, we're actually a functional, competent team now. So that that's fun. This, this is going to be fun. Yeah, I um, I don't even know which one you'd rather start with because... I retweeted um, a Sandy Alderson tweet from 2012. Did you see this? Um, no. Okay. So Sandy Alderson tweeted on February 12th, 2012. Uh, we'll have to drive carefully on trip, semicolon. Mets only reimburse for gas at a downhill rate. We'll try to coast all the way to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> How far things have come. <laughs> Um, they're comparing spending to going to the grocery aisle. I don't know if you saw the, the live press conference updates from Bob Nightingale, USA Today, but, um, they compared, Sandy compared the new situation with Cohen to the Wilpons. It's like he was having to shop and I, I, I forgot what section it was not the gourmet section. And now he's like, I can now shop a little bit at the gourmet section. I just, I don't know where it is. So someone's going to have to show me, show me where to go. Yeah, but- the Mets upgraded from Sea Town to at least like maybe they're not quite Whole Foods, but they're not terribly far from it at this point. Especially because it seems like Steve Cohen is genuinely ready to spend. I mean, he said point blank, like I don't care about making a profit, which is of course a little disingenuous because he's going to make a profit no matter what. Like a baseball team is an appreciating asset that will make him money no matter what he does. But I mean, if you're a Mets fan, that's unironically you love to hear it. This is what's been missing for literally decades um the idea not just the idea of a mets owner willing to spend money but of the mets behaving like a normal team or not even such a normal team because i mean i don't know how i don't know how possible it is for the mets to escape their very place in the universe but behaving like a big market team acting like a new york city baseball team and that's been just the yankees for pretty much since the you know since the, since the yankees started you know their dynasty run in the mid-90s you know, we've had brief bursts of Mets competence here and there, but it always those always felt, you know, um, fleeting, transitory. They always felt it, it never felt sustainable. It was always just because the, the the planets happened to align, or because the Mets happened to land on, you know, David Wright in his prime, or Johan Santana in his prime, or you know, whatever else it happened to be. It, it, it's it's almost kind of shocking to hear a Mets owner though say stuff like money is basically no object, you know. And to me, I think that makes the Mets probably the most interesting team of this offseason because how many teams realistically can you say right now have come out and said, um, we are going to spend much less we're going to spend big? You know, we really only had it, – it's rare now. I mean, I, I know everyone made a big deal when, when, when the Phillies did in the Bryce Harper offseason were like, we're going to spend stupid money, and then they kind of sort of did. Turns out they more just spent stupidly. But <laughs> – I, I, I mean, I do think the fact, like, this is, this is if any offseason, there were a time for you to get a new, rich owner who does not care one bit about what things are going to cost, because he knows, not only does he seemingly care about um, what the Mets become, because Steve Cohen is, is a Mets fan, but also he knows he has to make an impression on Mets fans that is point blank, I am not the Wilpons. 
And you saw that start with the fact that he cleaned out the front office. And I, I mean, that's not, I don't necessarily know if that's, that's not clearly just a purely a, a, a Will Pons thing. That's, you know, any new owner is going to put in the people he wants. And clearly with Sandy Alderson in charge, he was not going to settle for the weird Brody Van Wagen experiment and Omar Minaya, who, who Alderson clearly is not a fan of, and leftovers like Allard Baird. Like that was just never going to happen. But it's still really important that this is what the Mets are doing anyway, that they had that Steve Cohen and Sandy Alderson have decided we need a completely fresh start. And that means a new front office. And I, I figure we'll probably get into this, but I think that's the most I, I know the Phillies are looking for a GM now. Um, there are a couple other teams looking. I can't think of a better if you're if you're someone who wants to be a general manager, a president of baseball ops, even with Alderson there kind of in a weird position where we're not I don't I think we're gonna have to wait and see how that shakes out in terms of who makes the calls and what direction. But can you think of a job you'd rather have than being in charge of the Mets right now? With, well, with all that money? Well, I wrote about this. I wrote about this yesterday when thinking about the Braves and this new new group running the Mets is that like, whether it's Chernoff, Antonetti, Ross Atkins, uh, fucking um, Alex Anthopoulos, like, it, like Theo Epstein... It, it's kind of like the Andrew Friedman thing. Like there are just so many parallels to what the Dodgers did when they when Frank McCourt sold the team to the Guggenheim group. Um, it's just like all these smart baseball minds who have had to find just kind of weird ways to pseudo contend on uh, under ownership groups that aren't really all that into the idea of just spending a bunch of money and being in the top five in payroll and putting in the work that uh, is necessary to develop juggernaut like the Dodgers have developed the Mets can easily do that they easily can have that infrastructure they can easily build that and yeah I think you're right that they are going like if you are a even if you're happy in your in your group wherever you are right now around baseball like the Mets job is suddenly like outside of the Dodgers and I guess maybe the Yankees is there a a more just a, a I don't even know how to describe it, a more intriguing opportunity than running the Mets. And people are like, oh, it's the Mets. Like, well, no, it was the Wilpon Mets. Like, this is, you have to start fresh. You have to wipe your brain clean from whatever you thought about the Mets before Steve Cohen took over because it's A, not fair to him. And B, we just, he's the richest owner in, in baseball now. Like, it's just the odds of <laughs> it going anywhere as badly as it did with the Wilpons are are pretty slim to me. And the fact that certain names are already popping up and the fact that Alderson already cleaned house immediately, uh, tells me they're serious and that, um, another NL juggernaut is coming and that they are going to be able to pick almost whoever they want to be, uh, to be the lead guy here. Right. And not just pick whoever they want, but because so many front offices are just slashing staff right now because of quote-unquote budgetary reasons, they're going to have their pick of pretty much everyone who becomes available because I imagine, and if Steve Cohen is smart, and he certainly seems the part, and Steve Cohen and Alderson are smart, they're going to say, listen, like, come to us. We will pay you. You know, we, I mean, Cohen already undid all the salary reductions that had happened during the pandemic um, that the Wilpons had, had put out. So, I mean, there's already a sign there that's like, hey, we, 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 we can pay. We've got, we've got, we're flush with cash, you know, come work for us. You'll be paid well. And I imagine too, with Cohen, there's probably a mindset of, like you said, I think the Dodgers are an instructive and good example, like you said, because there's also that idea of like, hey, we need to build something here. It's not just about spending the money. It's about building the infrastructure necessary so you can become something like the Dodgers, you know? And I think that that is going to be, probably the biggest selling point for front office folks from Cohen and Alderson is probably the two of them going, listen, come here and build. We will pay you and we will stay out of your hair. And I mean, obviously we can't, we can't guarantee that that's the case. We have no idea what kind of owner Steve Cohen is. I mean, all we have to go off of is one press conference, you know, Alderson, again, we have to wait to see how he, you know, what exactly how responsibilities get divvied up between himself and a president of baseball operations and a GM, if it does end up being kind of a, a triumvirate structure. But regardless, I think, you know, I, I think there is probably that existing and probably determined minds would be like, we're going to be the Dodgers of the East as much as they can be, you know, compared to the Yankees, obviously. But I, I have to think that's the blueprint, because like you said, it just, you know, it, it, this is a moment, like and I've seen Dodgers fans on, on my timeline talk about it, too, that this is what it felt like, or it reminded them, at least, 
of, like you said, when Frank McCourt sold to the Guggenheim Group and those guys came in with and promised straight up, we're going to spend. There's not going to be any, there are no more days of penny pinching here. We're going to spend and we're going to build something that, you know, that people can be proud of. And eight years later, they have a championship. And really, they probably should have won at least one or two more in that time period, too. So, I mean, if you're a Mets fan, this is probably a really weird feeling. Like, there's just nothing but unbridled and actually realistic hope. You know, you can you can pick over the Mets roster all you want and over their farm system and, you know, try to figure out, okay, how close does this team actually to being a, a real contender? But at the same time, if you have an owner who's willing to spend, it's, it's not that far, especially in an no. offseason where no one else is going to do it. Right. Like, we're already seeing how chilly of a free agency this is going to be for a lot of guys. Um, yeah, and with... Yeah, we've seen that with the, with the option decline. We're going to yep. see, especially when the non-tender deadline rolls up, that's going to be a bloodbath. Um, that's going to be a lot of guys getting cut. Because, I mean, that's, that's the truth. A bunch of teams are just going to cry poor this winter. Yep. Which really great ahead of the upcoming CBA negotiations. That's exactly what the sport needed is three straight brutal off-seasons in that regard. I guess last off-season wasn't, wasn't that bad. But the last thing baseball needed right now was a bad off-season. And it's going to get maybe the worst we've ever seen. I, um, at least, since, at least since the collusion winters of the eighties. It's, it's going to be bad, but like you said, this is just a great situation for the Mets to be in because they're, it's almost like they're bidding against themselves for a lot of guys. Like they will be, yeah. <laughs> it won't be very hard for them to be like, Hey Atlanta, uh, what are you going to offer Marcelo Zuna? And Atlanta's like uh, one year for $20 million. And they're like, all right, Marcel, would you like two years for 60? All right, done. <laughs> like it's, the a- they might, they might, I mean, you might just get that system of like what we would consider overpays, but if yes. you're the Mets, why not? Like, because the other part of the Mets is, you know, they've signed Jacob Degrom to his big extension. That's really their biggest concern. Like the one, one of the few things Brody Van Wagenen got right in his brief tenure um, was getting that extension done, and that's the, you know, the single most important thing that could have happened to the Mets over the last couple of years was getting Degrom signed long term, so they don't have to worry about that anymore. But otherwise, this is not a team that has huge expenses on the books. They don't have a lot of big long-term contracts, you know. Most of their guys are either underpaid along the lines of, you know, Michael Conforto or uh, a healthy Noah Syndergaard or, um, you know, I guess now Brandon Nimmo or, or, or Pete Al- obviously Pete Alonzo or their, their very good young prospect, Andres Jimenez. And there's really not a whole, like, I mean, I don't have the, the Mets contracts in front of me, but, like, this is not a team that, that, that has a lot of money already on the books that it needs to worry about. The, the future is pretty open for them. It feels like I, I could be entirely wrong on that. I'm just going to, I'm going to check out their contracts now just because I do feel like double checking, but I mean, there's the other benefit that the Mets have is that they're coming into this winter, not just with the money to spend, but also without that real worry of, okay, what's, what's coming on the horizon in the future? What money do we have to worry about going forward? And really aside from DeGrom and I forgot about Robinson Cano, who, I will. I would not be surprised if the Mets simply ate the money left to him and just got rid of him. I don't. Re- I mean, Cano, I mean, that's that's probably actually that's that's not going to happen. Cano actually had a pretty good year last year. I was going to say, are we going to have a universal DH in the NL next year? That's a good question, and I would recommend people go to Fangraphs.com and read Jay Jaffe on the universal DH. Um, it's going to have to be something, as you know, that that has to be bargained into existence between the players union and the league. Um, I remember seeing that the league had suggested that they would, because the players want to keep the expanded DH for extremely obvious reasons. And I think the, the league does too. And certainly the players association wants to, because it is um, 15 more guaranteed major league roster spots, mm-hmm. but. And it, not even they, just guarantee, but also veteran guarantees. I think that's the yeah, difference. Yes. Yeah. DHs are invariably veteran guys. Um, you know, you don't usually call up a prospect unless it's like, you know, maybe if it's something like, I mean, the uh, the roster is obviously different, but something like a guy like Andrew Vaughn or like the Mets have with like Dom Smith. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a guy who's plugging at DH and don't worry about him just happens to be young. But yeah, most teams, it's just a collection of older guys where it's like, well, you can't play in the field all the time, but you can hit a bit. Yep. Or Nelson. I mean, the, the platonic ideal, obviously, is Nelson Cruz. But um, the problem, though, is that because it needs to be negotiated, the league is going to want something in return. And right now, it seems like what's what's on the table is we we will give the we will we will. um Sorry we will adopt the universal DH if the players agree to expanded playoffs. And that's obviously not a trade the players should make. That's a terrible, terrible idea for the players to do. And I ultimately don't think it will come to that, but ultimately like we, we just, we're going to have to wait to wait and see because 
Um, I don't believe the universal DH is something that could be implemented unilaterally. I don't believe this is something Rob Manfred could just decide. I think it must be collectively bargained with the players. So, I mean, maybe, maybe it ends up being something where it's like we lose it next year and it comes back in the new CBA, but I, that would be kind of strange, honestly. I, I, think, I think they'll find a way to make it happen one way or the other. I hope so. Um, I, it, it, it's, it's very nice. I'm very pro universal DH. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think anyone, maybe, maybe the most hardcore NL purists still saw it as a, as a, as an anathema, but I mean, like I, I, I've been, I grew up an American league fan. I love the DH way better than watching pitchers hit, you know, I, there's no reason to get rid of it. No reason whatsoever. You know, I've also been to a lot of minor league games in my day, a lot of minor league baseball games. And I never once thought even growing, growing up an NL fan, like, Man, wish I got to see some more pitchers here. Then that was thing. Like, how many times could you count? Like, how many? If you were to ask those NL purists, how many games did you watch where you sat there thinking to yourself it was worse to have the DH than it was to have the pitcher? Yeah, I don't. They're not gonna. It's never. It's it, not gonna come up. It is. All it, it is is, is nostalgia. It's just nostalgia. It is. It, it, it's an argument based purely on the sentimental value of watching pitchers hit and that idea of not losing something that is special at the expense of losing something that is useful, which I don't know. I mean, I, I, I guarantee no matter what happens with the universal DH, if it does get adopted, I guarantee there'll be people who will kick and scream the whole way through that they don't want it. And it's a, it's a, a blemish on the game and blah, blah, blah. But quite honestly, like you need to listen to those people less to a certain degree. People are always going to complain about changes in baseball. And, like, I, I think they're going right to complain about them. changes in general. People, as they get older, are more resistant to change. Like, I imagine there were a lot of people who were very upset that the three-point line was becoming a thing in, in basketball. Like, I'm sure there was a, a small subset of people that were like, Whoa, the game's over. You've ruined basketball with this three-point line. Not watching this anymore. What a joke. I'm sure that was a, a talking point at the time. Oh, I'm sure it was too. I mean, the, the trick is just that, you know, I was, I was, you know, since you point out the three point line and how wildly important it's become to current basketball to the point that like all basketball now revolves around like shots from like in the paint and, and at the three point line and just the mid range jumper no longer exists. Like, but obviously like adopting the universal DH is not going to have that level of effect on major league baseball. And that's the other thing. It's like, this is a change that for, it might seem seismic, but it's, it's pretty damn minor. Like, yeah, it just means that pitchers won't hit, and there'll be 15 more guys on NL rosters who can, theoretically yeah. at least, you know. And I, I don't even necessarily know if, like, you know, I, I haven't looked at the numbers because I haven't um, actually haven't had the chance to read Jay's piece today. But I would wager that overall, like, most NL teams probably didn't get that much extra out of the designated hitter. They got better out of the DH than they would have gotten out of their pitchers. Mm. But the truth is, going into next, going into last season, most teams didn't really just have a DH type guy lying around because National League teams don't really sign those guys so and that's the other thing like all the more reason for them to kind of expedite figuring that out because now national league teams can go into this winter and be like okay we do have this extra lineup spot you know now we can do something about it now you can maybe have a team like um just to throw names out there without really thinking about the roster but like atlanta or san diego or whoever who might look at a nelson cruz and be like yeah he makes sense for us now now too expensive for atlanta um, everyone's too expensive for Atlanta. It's true. Um, who would you guess had the highest team offensive WRC plus this season? Who was tied for first? Who was tied out of 2020? Mm-hmm. Los Angeles, the Dodgers. Who do you think they were tied with? At 122, enough, I think. Weirdly enough, I know this, and it, it just it kind of blew my... It's the Mets. It is the Mets. That's why when it people... Is, it, like, because like, I think I saw... Yeah. I saw, I think it was the Boston Globes, Alex Fair pointed out that it's like their Mets are one of like the few teams ever to have a team weighted around straight up plus that high and not make the postseason. They're one Which of really says the top six. The they all made it. And the Mets were the only one in that top six who did not make the playoffs. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like we actually, speaking of fan graphs, Craig Edwards had a piece along those lines. Of, or no, sorry. It wasn't Craig. It was Ben Clemens. That the Mets offense on its base is pretty good. Yes. It's one of the better units that exists, and the truth is not a lot of that's going to change next year. I mean, I don't know if you can count on Robinson. Robinson Cano looked like old Robinson Cano last year. I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case over 162 games or whatever we end up getting as opposed to 60. But the Mets had a good offense despite Pete Alonso having a bad year, despite basically getting nothing, I believe, out of the outfield beyond uh, Nimmo and Conforto, and despite whatever else affects the Mets on a general basis, you know? 
that's a team that with the right move, and they're getting nothing out of catcher too. And they don't currently, I believe, even have one. Uh, both Rene Rivera and Wilson Ramos are gone. Tomas Nito, I think, is number one on the depth chart, and he is a third string catcher and absolutely nothing more at this point. So that's that's not only a good offense that has a good base, but it's a good offense that can still be improved because there are obvious spots where you can make a change and make a difference. You can like, for example, like JT Realmuto obviously will be very high on the Mets wish list because he is exactly what they need. He's a catcher. He's a good catcher who can hit. Perfect. But George Springer should be right up there too. The Mets don't have a center fielder. They haven't had a center fielder for what feels like years. Every year, they just seem to roll out some misplaced corner outfielder in center and just tr- make him try to do the work that he can't do. Springer is a good center fielder and a great hitter, and he's a great leadoff hitter, which granted the Mets have Nemo, so that's not exactly a terrible problem, but Springer is a better hitter than Nemo overall, and regardless, that's a perfect fit for them anyway. Or someone like a DJ LeMahieu, because second base is another spot, even with Cano. I would be terrified of LeMahieu. I think he's my number one most terrified guy to sign. Uh, in the position I under, player i can understand that but i do genuinely think that like whatever the yankees figured out with him is not something that only the yankees have i don't I know think is, i think like I think it's not even that he, like maybe like either the chances of him either just breaking down due to his age like if he leaves and signs a good contract and just like he had so much to prove in new york like the the fact that he moved on from Colorado to New York and just the level of playing like an AL like he just he had so much to prove and so much to win there that like I, I would just be I would be terrified I would 100% be terrified and I can, and I can understand that I think I think LeMahieu is not necessarily the safest of bets but I feel pretty good about him he's a smart hitter and he very clearly figured something out but well how many years would you go if you're a contender how many years would you go on LeMahieu probably three I'd be comfortable with three mm, I couldn't go three yeah, I, I could go two I actually have to understand year three is probably not going to be the prettiest year, but at the same time, obviously, I mean, this has been the thing about free agency forever. You pay, you overpay for year three to get years one and two. And those are the years that matter the most. Anyway, if you're a good team, you can survive that regardless. And if you're a Mets team that has more money than God at this point, what do you care if the third year of DJ LeMay, whose contract is a little underwater, unless he is just completely like, unless he goes full, um, uh, what's the guy's name who basically the Mets signed and he basically died. Um, recently, uh, yeah, um, Jesus, why Todd is this, Walker? Why is this Neil Walker? No, no, the the infielder from the A's, Daniel he Murphy, looks like Grant Brisby. No, mm. not Daniel Murphy. Um, who are we? Who are we missing here? Jed Lowry. Jed, Jed Lowry. Lowry yes. Okay. Yeah. Who who signed with the Mets and then disappeared because he just seriously hurt his knee and the Mets are just worked. I guess that's the only thing for Steve Cohen. He should probably invest in like. He should just invest in the best medical staff he can humanly find because the Mets are very clearly not up to date on that one. But I don't think like I I think the odds of DJ LeMahieu turning into that are probably pretty low. I mean I haven't seen like obviously there I don't think there are any projections out yet for what um, we can expect for 2021 and it's going to be super complicated by what 2020 was as well. But I mean I don't know maybe maybe LeMahieu's not the right pick for the Mets anyway. But like. You know, depending on what they want to do with Cano and depending what they want to do with the combination of Andres Jimenez and Ahmed Rosario and depending on what they want to do at third base where they really don't have a solution right now. And where I know we haven't really done much of like an offseason kind of look, but third base is really shallow in free agency. There's really very little out there. But who knows? Maybe maybe that's the key for them for the Mets to get involved in a Francisco Lindor deal or a Chris Bryant deal or something. Imagine the Mets can probably pull off a Chris Bryant deal at this point. Especially if one of Bryant's sticking points is I want a contract, Mets can pretty easily say, "Okay, here you go." Mm. You know they're 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 in they're in a safe position there. Same with Lindor. Lindor's can, Lindor's problem with the Indians is they won't give him money. The Mets can go, "Okay, here you go. Here's all the money you could ever want in the world. You're ours now." And then maybe that frees them up to trade to trade someone like Jimenez or Mauricio for starting pitching depth or for you know some kind of some kind of long-term help at third base or whatever it happens to be. I, I can't say for sure, but Antonetti you know, leaving, so think, uh, leaving the Indians and then going to the Mets and then trading for Lindor with turnoff would be, would be something else. That would be very funny. But <laughs> I, I think, I think the thing is here though, that the Mets being a normal baseball team with money now opens up so many doors for them that if we had gone into this off season with the Wilpon still in charge, I don't think we're talking at all about the Mets either as like potential Lindor trade partners or, a team that would sign Real Muto or even a team that would be anything. I think we would go into the next spring being like, 
the same song and dances every year. If everything goes right for the Mets, they win 88 games. And if everything goes wrong, like it usually does, they win 73, you know, now there's actual real, there's a real reason to think that the Mets can put together a legitimate season because they finally have legitimate ownership and are going to have a legitimate front office. What a crazy concept right there. Yeah. And this is what I've told the Atlanta fans who are cocky. Like, we'll we'll, we'll see it when we believe it. Like the, the NLE streak, like, I'd be concerned. Like the best thing the Braves have going for them right now is that they have Acuna and Albies locked up to team-friendly deals for a long time. Like that is their best best thing is that they do not have to worry about that down the road. Um, but a competent Mets in the New York market was always the the looming the looming Death Star to the Braves' just contention window. And it's not like the Mets are going to be starting from where the Marlins did. Um, when Jeter took over, this is a very different situation, obviously. No, and it, it, it's it's yeah. funny. It kind of re, it, make, it recasts them as like is the Mets potentially turning themselves into the Yankees, at least in terms of like monetary ability. Whereas the Braves take on more of kind of a Tampa Bay type of role. Yes, where I wrote they, about they're, they're like the Padres. I mean, Tampa, just like the Padres in the in the NL West, where it's like the Dodgers have they're going to be there. The Padres, what they can hope for is like they have the fun young guys. They have. They can go all in every now and then. They can develop a great farm system. They have that. They know how to develop. They have a great pipeline. They'll have that for years. But you're just going. The best case is you just have one magical run, and then you're back to kind of contending, not really for the next five. Like I think the Braves. I'm nervous that that was their best shot for a while this year. I think that might have been the best shot for a while. And I know we've talked about it, and it does make sense. Like, I know we've talked about, like, Atlanta's roster is still pretty good, notwithstanding, because, you know, they, I mean, they're going to lose a fair number of free agents. And granted, like, a lot of those free agents aren't necessarily guys they're going to miss terribly hard, unless you have particular feelings about Shane Green and Will Smith and the, the beloved Nick Markakis. Like, Ozuna's really the one guy there where you're like, that's going to hurt. You know, to lose that bat in the middle of the order. But you know, but I understand where you're coming from, and I do I do share that belief that, like, yeah, this idea of the Mets but normal and with money and acting the way a New York team should, that's frightening. That has to be really frightening for the rest of the National League. And I can totally understand why when Steve Cohen is, is giving his talk about how he doesn't care about making a profit, you can completely understand why Jerry Reinsdorf was trying to pull out every trick in his dirty, dirty book to try to get the A-Rod ownership group approved instead. Because if that's A-Rod sitting up there or whoever it is, they're not talking about spending more. They're talking about, quote-unquote, spending smarter which is just their nice, simple way of being like, we're not going to spend all that more, but we're going to focus way more on guys who are way cheaper. This leads us to Reinsdorf's uh, <sighs> fantastic, thoughtful, <Just> forward-thinking <laughs> decision to wow. not only hire Tony Rusa, but also do so, knowing a pending DUI charge was coming. Knowing the day before, knowing, or being told the day before and that not changing anything, it is mind-blowing how arrogant this is. Not just arrogant, but just flat-out shitty. Because that's the thing. This was already a bad decision. I don't think I've seen anyone, anywhere, at any level, say that this is a good decision. That hiring Tony LaRusso, 78-year-old Tony LaRusso, who is out of touch with not just baseball, but like normal society, as any person could get. To run a team that is young and predominantly of color and fun and exciting, it's, it's just, it is such a mismatch at every level that, like, obviously it had to be Ryan Storr's call. And, like, part of this, like, all the quotes Rick Hahn gave had all the feeling of someone being forced to record a proof-of-life video during a hostage take. <laughs> like, nothing Rick Hahn said carried any weight in terms of, like, this is my decision. It clearly was not his decision. He clearly wanted A.J. Hinch or someone similar. Reinsdorf wanted LaRusa. and But then, like you said, to throw the DUI on top of it is just unbefucking leavable Like, how arrogant and shameless can you be on top of everything else Tony LaRusa represents? And, like, this is a guy, this is also is not one, one mistake. This isn't a man, ma- like, making one bad decision and a life otherwise free of them. He has a history of this. He got a DUI like a month after Josh Hancock died in a drunk driving accident. Tony LaRusso very clearly has some kind of alcohol problem. If nothing else. like, Well, hold on. Hold on. He's a Hall of Famer, baby. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a Hall <laughs> of Famer. He's a Hall of Fame baseball person. He's legit. 
Like, and that's the other thing. Not only is this just even beyond the like the, the shameless shittiness of it, it's just embarrassing. It's humiliating. Like you you are just spitting in the face of every White Sox and be like, well, I know you guys are excited about our season, so here's an old racist drunk who's just going to run the team into the ground for a year before we all come to our senses and fire him. We're going to waste a year of everyone's they, life and time. Do you think At they least. fire him? I think they can. Well, right now, I mean, yeah. they should have fired him. Like they should have fired him the second the DUI arrest news came well, out. Yeah, for sure. But I think this is. Uh, I I think like before all this, I didn't think I they don't would. Think Ryan, I don't think I don't think Reinsdorf cares. I genuinely mm. don't think he cares. And I think that's the most important. If this had been Rick Hahn's choice for whatever reason, I think it's different. Yeah. But this is clearly Jerry Reinsdorf's choice, and the fact that he made the fact that it was Tony Lewis in the first place suggests very deeply that Reinsdorf does not care one bit what anyone else thinks or has to say. Yeah, this is his team; he will run it as he sees fit, and that includes giving his old drinking buddy the manager gig that he got booted out of forty years ago, or however long it's been. <laughs> like, it, it really is just something where it's like, because I, I know we, we didn't get a chance to talk about Larissa when it happened, but like, th- there's no defending it, and especially now. But like as as we've learned in American society over the last four years, the only thing stronger than the cries of like shame from other people are the people who don't care at all about that. And Reinsdorf has never ever struck me as someone who cares at all what other people think, beyond like Michael Jordan, which understandable. So, I mean, I mean, all you got to do is look back on the whole sorry sordid mess uh, at the end of Jordan's Bulls tenure. And how Reinsdorf just made whatever decisions he wanted without caring at all what that meant for anybody else. And granted, like, obviously Jordan had a lot to, to do and say with that, too. But, like, everything the way it happened with Phil Jackson, everything that happened with um, Jerry Krause, everything that happened with Scottie Pippen, like, all of that just had the imprimatur of Reinsdorf being like, I don't care. It's my way or nothing. And I think Tony LaRusso is part of that, too. I think it is very clear that this is just... He doesn't care. It, I, 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 I can't. I think it, if if Larissa had gotten into like a straight up accident and those details had leaked out, like if he'd hit another car or something, or gotten into a hit and run or something equally like like insanely felonious, that's one thing. But I think, and I think they'll just try to play it off as Tony made a mistake. Nobody got hurt though. Like you know, he's he's sorry. He's going to do better. Whatever. Blah blah blah. Even though, of course, the immediate response is. He's a 78-year-old man. How does he not know better at this point? You know, that, that, that excuse just doesn't fly after a certain point. Yeah. Especially when he's already been busted for DUI before. Like, again, this is very clearly someone who has an alcohol problem. <laughs> he should not be in charge of a major league team. He should not, he, I wouldn't put him in charge of a damn Shoney's. <laughs> Shoney's still a thing? Do they? Yeah, Shoney's exist. There's actually one, okay. like, 20 minutes from Knoxville I saw. Uh, when I first, I, I figured like Shoney's is kind of like a more of a southern thing. I feel like, although I, I remember so. seeing one when I grew up in, I grew up in Western Maryland, and they had them there. So I think it's Midwestern. I could be wrong. Then again, there was also a Ponderosa there. Nobody ever seems to know what a Ponderosa is when I mention those. My uncle was in a band called Ponderosa. It was just like a generic like steakhouse chain that was like 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 Sizzlers or uh, is Sizzlers or, Grant, or like I think Sizzlers is gone. Mm, yeah, I, I was gonna say like Golden Corral. Golden Corral is definitely still around. Oh, absolutely. Golden Corral will be here like long after the apocalypse. Uh, Golden Corral will still uh, still be uh, feeding the there's, aliens. If there's, if there's one type of food establishment, I'd actually be really interested to read something on this. If there's one type of food establishment that I think would absolutely not survive the COVID nineteen pandemic, it's buffet for old people. Like stuff like that. Country kitchen, like. Um, Wait, you thought they would not survive? Yeah, because... Oh, I've got bad news about how old people in my (laughs) neck of the woods are handling the pandemic. Uh, They're going. Okay, fair. (laughs) You gotta get that blue plate special, man. You gotta... (laughs) Let me go ahead and uh, fill you in, uh, Mr. Taylor. Uh, They're doing fine. I drive by a CC's every day. It's filled. But there's a thing. There's there's that whole line of... um, basically like not even not even ca- casual not even the right but like sit down restaurants that exist along highway exits and at rest stops mm-hmm. where it's like how on earth are those still surviving amidst all of this you know how is friendlies like still holding on you can only sell so many fribbles for takeout before things go to hell do you know what i miss 
24 hour diners. I don't know if you're a 24 hour dining person. Oh man, I love those. The thing is, like, they're a bit of a dying. They were already a dying breed in New York, and now they're going to be wiped out. I don't know how many are going to come back. But especially in New Jersey, right across the river, uh, the 24 hour diner is a a mainstay, a cultural mainstay that will never go away. I hope. Um, Yes, I I deeply miss 24 hour diners as well. I'm sure Tony Larusa does too. He could have just (laughs) cozied up to a booth and drank some coffee, left it off a little. Gone full Jimmy McNulty. Um, yeah, got to get some Scrapple. <laughs> I guess they don't do Scrapple in Arizona. It's only a, only a Northeast Is he in thing. Arizona? Because he was in Nashville working or, with Dombrowski for getting that uh, MLB well, the, team out the, the ground. The DUI story was that he was out with Angels, like, team, with, like, Angels team executives or something, right? That they were oh. all out to dinner or something? Yeah, because so he had a glass of wine at dinner. I think, yeah. yeah, that's right. I'm sure it was just one <laughs> glass of wine for old Tony. Um, but yeah, I, I, got, I, was, I could be wrong, but I was under the impression that it was in Arizona because that's where, presumably, like with, with most NL, West, NL and AL West teams that they have of, you know, if, if LaRusse is doing special activities for the Angels, and he's almost certainly involved with their um, minor league stuff. So what do you guess, ultimately? If you had to guess what happens here, what, what would you guess? Can the Nothing. MLB suspend him? They could probably suspend Larissa, right? They can probably suspend him if they want to. Um, well, they did a great job suspending if- uh, Justin Turner and the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that was different because MLB had nothing to lo- like. MLB had honestly nothing to gain there. I think it was entirely in their best interest to make the whole thing go away as quickly as possible, as the- was the case with everything about them with the pandemic. They just clearly didn't want, did not want to deal with the aspect with any aspect of it. But I think with Larissa, I mean, I think. It depends. If he and Reinsdorf come out and are just, you know, um, what's the word? Uh, you know, if, they, if they're remorseful, if they express the remorse, if Larusa is, you know, says, you know, I, I made a mistake, I made a horrible mistake, it won't happen again, blah, I think Manfred could probably let it slide, but I don't know. Ultimately, I, I think maybe we get a suspension of a few games for whatever the season will be, which would be really great. It's like, here's your new manager. He's suspended for the first three games of the season. <laughs> He's wrong. But, like, I, I don't see the White Sox. If the White Sox are going to do anything, it would have been the moment that news dropped. The fact that they didn't suggest that unless there are some extremely bad details we're not hearing, um, and I, given that Jeff Passan's already got the police report and there was nothing in it beyond just the, again, the embarrassment of I'm a Hall of Fame baseball person, um, I, don't, I don't think LaRusa goes. I think Reinsdorf is dug in too deep here. And I think the other thing is, like, I think he knows that firing LaRusa would admit that it was a mistake in the first place. Even if you can, even if you can write it off as well, turns out he had a DUI. It's like, yeah, but you knew about the DUI. So why was it okay before it got to the, before it got got out as news, and not after? You know, and I think that that would have to be Ryan Zorf admitting I made a mistake. And I don't think he's going to do that. It needs to end with Carlos Beltran getting the White Sox job. That is how this needs should. to end. Honestly, like what Carlos Beltran did is not worse than what Tony Larusa did. I'd rather have a guy who cheated, sort of, kind of, than a drunk. At least the guy who cheated isn't going to fall asleep in the middle of a game. <laughs> I mean, shit, we have Alex Cora during his press conference saying he hopes Carlos Beltran gets another chance. Everyone gets another chance. Cora, well, and I think there's one person who's not getting another chance, and it's the, the person suing his former team. Uh, Jeff Luno. I mean, I, I will, He's probably I will, gone. Yeah, I mean, I think he understands that, too. I think because, I, I, I mean, I don't know if you read Craig Calcaterra's uh, daily newsletter thing that he started one after getting let go from that piece. Okay. And he wrote about it with his, you know, and since he's a former lawyer, he, you know, understands all the legal stuff very well. And he made the, the very, you know, persuasive and, and almost certainly correct point that Luno, by doing this, understands that he has burned every last bridge, that no team is ever going to hire him after this, but that he doesn't care because he just wants to get paid. Yep. Because he knows that MLB does not at any point want to go to discovery for any of this stuff because of how embarrassing potentially and damaging potentially it could be to Major League Baseball and Rob Manfred. So he's banking that they are just going to pay, that he, the MLB will pay him to go away at this point. And then he can go take some private sector job doing whatever the hell it is he wants, you know, far from the, far from the, pub, far from the probing eye of, of the media and just disappear. And I think honest, I, I, that's honestly best for everybody. But the problem is that the the lessons Jeff Lunau taught and the atmosphere he created, those don't go away as easily. Um, that is his poisonous legacy is what he has presumably done to Major League, or at least what he and the Astros have done to Major League Baseball, not just through the cheating, but through all their McKinsey-esque bullshit, like, you know, the way that the minor leagues are getting torn apart or, you know, the way teams now build themselves and 
it's going to take a lot more to get rid of that than it is to get rid of Jeff Leno. But yeah, I, I agree though. I, he's almost certainly done within baseball. In happier news, the Seattle Mariners. We don't usually get to say this about the Seattle Mariners, but uh, Kyle Lewis, their first uh, young, fun guy that they get to really enjoy before Jerry Depoto trades him in a nine-teamer. Um, good news. Kyle Lewis, what do you think? It was the right choice. Um, yeah. Lewis was definitely the better, like Luis Robert, Luis Roberts, a better defender, but Lewis is the better hitter. And then Roberto had an awful September that I think probably dragged him down for a lot of voters. Um, and you can see like, obviously Lewis was the unanimous first, first place selection. And it, it's He's from where I'm from, Mariners, by the way. Like, oh, that's, that's cool. Yeah. He went, went to Shiloh, boy. a high school five minutes from me. So Parkview and Shiloh are like within five minutes of each other. So yeah, he's there actually, you you, I didn't you know that. Lewis. You and Kyle Lewis are basically best buds. Uh, basically, basically, Matt Olson <laughs> went to my high school. First baseman for the A's. Like, like, man, you got a lot. Of, you got a lot of famous friends. Yeah, exactly. People forget. But um, the Mariners aren't a team people really talked about coming out of 2020 because it just it didn't really feel like there was much to talk about. They kind of just did their Mariners thing. They weren't as bad as I think people expected. They weren't particularly good. They were just kind of there. But there's some interesting stuff going on there. And beyond Kyle Lewis, I mean, they have both Julio Rodriguez and Jared Kalenic hanging out down in the middle. Those are both top 10 prospects. You know, the Kalenic, obviously the, the, the worst of Brody Van Wagenen's mistakes and Rodriguez being one of their uh, better international signings has panned out, but there's a lot interesting. I think that is going on in Seattle. And I don't necessarily know if it adds up to a contender, but um, between Kyle Lewis, Kyle, or Kyle Seeger having a little bit of a bounce back year, Dylan Moore having in, I don't know. If, I don't know if the Dylan Moore one is all that um, replicable. That kind of came out of nowhere. But certainly the way Marco Gonzalez pitched, uh, they got some good results out of Justice Sheffield. I, I think that if there's any major problem with the Mariners, it's that there's a lot of. Um, I mean, I'm just going to pull up their projected 2021 roster, but it just feels to me, just like looking over this team as a whole, there are a lot of kind of empty roster spots. There's a lot of guys on that team right now that are kind of projected to be just kind of below average, but are still going to take up way too many at bats or plate appearances or innings like Jose Marmalejos, Ty France, Luis Torrance. I mean, their catch right now is Luis Torrance, which I can't imagine is going to hold, um, you know, you say Kikuchi, Nick Marjavicious, like a, they have, their bullpen is awful. Like there's a lot of work to do, but I guess there is, it finally does feel for the first time in like since DePoto tore it all down, like there actually is a base to build on and it starts with Lewis and it starts with Julio Rodriguez and it starts with Kalenic. And it's a really, it's a small base right now, but it can get better. I mean, there's some room there. It's just the problem is like, I don't think there's really any reason to expect the Mariners as they stand right now. And unless they have a wild off season, which DePoto, but I don't think that's going to be the case. I mean, this, even with Lewis, this is probably like a 75 to 80, no, 80 is too high. This is probably like a 75 to 78 win team next year at the best. You know, there's just not enough talent on this roster yet, but it's getting there. You know, between Rodriguez and Kalenic, and I forgot to mention Logan Gilbert, one of their high draft picks, or uh, 2020 draft pick Emerson Hancock. Like, there's some there's some cool stuff going on in the minors and at certain places on the roster. It's just not it's just not enough yet, and they're very clearly still missing a lot of pieces. You know, their outfield is bad, as I said. Their catcher situation is bad. Their rotation is thin. Their bullpen is bad. But there's there's some interesting stuff going on here, I think. Yeah. Um and they're in a good division to still figure stuff out because the AL West is really just going to be going through some some interesting times, right? Like we don't know what's like the Angels still don't have a GM. We don't know where they're going. We don't know how much longer the A's are gonna be up top. Bean's gone. Um we'll see what happens there. They might lose their GM to the Mets. We don't know. Um, there's uncertainty there. There's uncertainty um, with the Astros going forward. Springer's all but gone. Um, I think they're going to continue. Michael Brandon, too, probably. Yeah, I think they're going to continue to be on the downward trajectory. I, I don't know. Like the Rangers are still a ways away. Um, the Rangers are awful. Yeah, they're, they're quietly one of the worst teams in baseball. Like it's, I think like because they. I mean, I know they were. I think the worst team in the American League this year. Yeah, but you look at that. You talk about rosters. You look at that are just full of holes mm-hmm. oh boy 
Well, that's what I'm saying. So, like, if you're a Mariners fan, you're like, okay, we got Kyle Lewis. We got some. Like, if Jerry Depoto just has a good offseason, like, they should be in the thick of things in the ALS next year. Like, they should be better. There's a, there's a they path. They should be better, and and you're right. There there are some there are some opportunities there. I think the Astros and and and, and A's, even if things even if things don't go well for them this offseason, still better overall yeah. than the Mariners. And I think one of those two should win the AL West regardless. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Like the A's are going to lose some guys this offseason. They have a lot of free agents. They're the not Astros, paying all of them. Spoiler alert: the A's are not paying yeah. everybody. Shocking. <laughs> um, and like you said, the Astros, they're going to lose Springer. They're probably going to lose Brantley. Um, they don't have Verlander at all next year because of Tommy John. Um, I mean, obviously they showed like a lot of good young talent that got them as far as it did this year. But, you know, certainly the days of the Astros being that kind of, you know, pencil them in for 100 wins in the AL West title, uh, those days are over. Um, and we don't, I mean, maybe based on what that farm system is, it's still a pretty good farm system. You know, maybe they can climb back up to that echelon, but I think it, it's going to take some real, real work. And the question is, you know, can Houston pull that off now when every other team does the same stuff they do? You know, what is, what is Houston's advantage now? And that's obviously a much bigger question and for someone who is way more connected to what Houston actually does. But, like, you know, you only have so long before, before your material and, like, brain power advantages kind of bleed away. And I think really the only team you can say that has that consistent advantage where you're like, they're just smarter and better than everyone else is the Dodgers. That's really the, and I guess to a certain degree, the Rays, but the Rays, of course, undermine it by not spending all. So, you know, and maybe the Mets, maybe the Mets will join that illustrious company, but I think that's probably still going to take a little bit of work for them. I think so. Um, last thing, Robbie Ray, now blue Jay, the, the era is over in uh, Arizona, but um what do you make of the Blue Jays' plan under Atkins to focus on starting pitching this winter? It makes sense because that's really what they were missing. Um, Ryu obviously is, is the leader of that rotation and a good reason, but they really never got anything consistent out of anyone else, um, which was kind of the case for, I think, the entirety of the AL East. Aside from Tampa Bay, there was just not enough pitching. Mm. But, you know, Tywin Walker didn't really work out. Nate Pearson got hurt. Uh, they, the Matt Shoemaker, as which is a shame. I really like Matt Shoemaker. He's got really interesting, great stuff. Um, I think it's the only real way the Blue Jays can go. I mean, certainly they can make additions elsewhere, and I think they're a team that has been mentioned a fair amount in the early off-season chatter as being a team that is going to be willing to spend, which, one, I will believe it when I see it, because it's the Blue Jays, and they don't ever do that, aside from Ryu last year. And Ryu honestly came at a kind of a discount to them. Like, I think that was more just an opportunity for them. They're like, well, we really shouldn't turn this up because we have literally no other pitching. Um, They're a team I believe in, by the way. I will say the Blue Jays as spenders, I believe in that more than other teams. I do. I, like I said, I just, I'm so wary of believing that for any Mark Shapiro team. Yeah. That I, I I guess I'll, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but like, obviously they have the great young offense and really like, you know, what do you like? You're not going to sign a shortstop to displace Bo Bichette. You're not going to sign a first baseman to displace Vlad Jr. You're not going to sign a second baseman to displace Kevin Biggio. Like you want those guys getting reps. You want them play. You want Teoscar Hernandez out there. You want um, whichever one of their catchers they kind of land on, be it Danny Jansen or Alejandro Kirk or whoever it happens to be. You know, you want those young guys doing that work. But the pitching, there's aside from Ryu and a healthy Pearson and. Boy, that's it. I can't even think of any other Blue Jays pitchers. That's a team that really is lacking in pitching. And like And this is not a good starting pitching market. Like they're gonna have to get they're gonna have to get interesting with uh with trades. Like they might have to part with some guys. That like they're gonna have to explore the trade market for an arm that can really, really help. Because Robbie Ray's not enough. No, and I but I think Ray is kind of the obvious solution not solution, but an obvious move in light of that because well, you're right this is not a great starting pitching market there's not a guy like Garrett Cole or even like Ryu who you can just go out and sign and be like okay we feel good about that it's mostly guys aside from Trevor Bauer who comes with his own deep series of complications um, where you're kind of just being like oh well I hope this works you know if you're signing James Paxton or if you bring back Marcus Stroman or if you you know there are going to be question marks with all of these guys so maybe it does make more sense to say, okay, Robbie Ray is obviously a very big question mark. You know, he had an awful season. He's never been able to kind of get his control under well, control. Um, he's always struggled with that. But the stuff is obviously elite. You know, he's shown before what he can do when he does get it together, which would be one of like the 15 best pitchers in baseball. 
for eight million dollars a year, that's nothing really. If he if he flames out, okay, it was eight million bucks. Who cares? That's like two years of a bad reliever. You know, that's that's not going to cripple the Blue Jays by any stretch of the imagination. I just imagine they are going to stay clear. I think they'll be in the chase for Bauer because I think he makes the most sense for them because he is the guy. He is a guy that they can just I feel probably count on. But he I think other like Canadian to me though. I don't know if Bauer in Canada wants. I don't think that's a match made in heaven. There's something about Trevor Not Bauer in Canada that scares me. The one, the one I'd be really interested in is if they go to Paxton and say mm. a, a big one-year pillow contract, one year like near what the qualifying offer was, like one year like sixteen to eighteen million. Yeah. Rebuild your value. Try again next winter. You know, because this is Paxton's first trip to free agency, and I don't think he's going to get the big long-term offers because he really no. did not have a good year, and he's had so many injury questions. You know, maybe that's when he's like, come home, quote-unquote, you know. The J.A. Hat thing. <laughs> come home to Canada, mm-hmm. rebuild your value on a team that should be a contender, you know, pitch in a much lower pressure environment than New York, you know, because I, I don't get the sense Paxton is ever comfortable in New York. Yeah, I think there are just some guys who just never really get comfortable there for whatever reason. I mean, not for whatever reason, for obvious reasons. But you know, but I think ultimately, can I interest you in a Cole be, Hamels? Ooh, but that, that's the thing. Like, I think we're going to end up seeing the Blue Jays do stuff like that: is target some of these veteran guys with upside and be like, "We can't make you. We're not going to give you a multi-year deal, but we can give you a big one-year contract because our payroll this year is super low because we have nothing on the books. You know, all our players are pre-arb or early arb." Like we can give you this one year deal, rebuild your value, you know, if you want, and if you if you like it, we can sign you again next winter and we can make them we can you can stick around. If it doesn't work, we all go our separate ways. And if you go your separate ways and you pitch better, okay, so be it. Like we'll take yeah. a shot. Because I think this is a Blue Jays team that like I mean, hell, they made the playoffs. They were basically a five hundred team. That is good enough to make the playoffs in the American League as it currently exists. And I think you and they should the be better. Jays, you can and they should be better. And I think that's the thing. I think if you're the Blue Jays, you can sell free agents on, hey, look, we were a 500 team last year with basically no pitching and like, and without even being able to play at home, which granted, there's, we don't know if they're actually going to be able to play at home next year either because, you know, boy, have we really botched all of this. But, you know, there, there's at least that, that selling point of we should be better next year for a variety of reasons. And you can be part of that. We just can't make you a big long-term offer because – Oh, because we're cheap. But, you know, maybe, and maybe this instead is the they Trevor decide Bauer to spend, pitch. <laughs> or maybe instead they decide to spend that money on someone like LeMahieu, who makes a ton of sense for that team because he can play all over the diamond. True. You know, he can, he can be their regular third baseman, which is a spot that they, you know, obviously don't have a solution for now that they've moved Vlad Jr. off that role. He can take time at second base to spot Biggio. He can play sec, he can play DH, he can play first base. You know, he can do everything, and he can be a veteran guy for that team. Because that's, I mean, that's one of those things, like, I think the Yankees like so much about LeMahieu is just he's one of those quiet veteran guys who everybody loves, you know, because he's not a big talker. He's not a, he's not a, he's not a hard ass. He's not a red ass. He's just TJ LeMahieu, normal, quiet guy, who's also really good. So I think he makes a lot of sense for a young team like Toronto to be that kind of veteran guy to be like, hey, I've been around the block. I know what it's like to be on a winning team. I know what it's like to play in the postseason. I'll be briefly. You know, I think he would make a lot of sense for them. Or even, or, or maybe someone like, maybe someone like Springer. Springer actually would make a lot of sense in Toronto too. Um, their outfield is a little bit unsettled beyond Teoscar Hernandez. And um, I guess Lourdes Gurriel, if they want to keep going with that, right field has just been a total hole for them. Derek Fisher very clearly is not the guy there. So I don't know. I mean, they do have Austin Martin. By the way, Martin's on outfield. He's a shortstop, right? Their top prospects. I believe their top so. Non-Nate Pearson prospect. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the Blue Jays have a lot of room to do stuff if they want to. It's just a matter of okay, are they actually going to make the financial commitment to doing it? And that's the thing. Like I said, that's just I will believe it when I see it when it comes to the Blue Jays. You know? Uh, yeah, yeah, Martin's a shortstop, so uh, never mind on that. But <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, that's that's we'll have to figure out what to do with him sooner rather than later with regards because Bichette is very clearly the guy there right now, but. Yeah, I can. I, I think Ray makes sense, and I can see them pursuing a strategy that's kind of similar to that, which is, you know, we we take these talented, kind of high ceiling, risky guys, give them a one year deal, and just try to make it work that way. Because you're really just not going to, like you said, you're not. There are no workhorses in this in this free agent in this free agent market for pitching. It's it's kind of a thin market, like you said. 
All right. Well, that's all I've got, uh, Mr. Taylor. Is there anything else you would like to add before we get out of here? No, I mean, we're it's been a quiet offseason so far, aside from the managerial stuff. I mean, I know we didn't talk Hinch or Cora, but I don't really know what there is to say about that beyond, like, everyone saw this coming. It was only a matter of time. Yeah. Um, I mean, the moment the Red Sox fired Cora, I just thought to myself, okay, so they're going to hire him back in a year. Yeah. They had they had to do this to save face, but they're very clearly going to reverse themselves the first chance they get. And Hinch was obviously another guy, too, where it's like, whatever whatever ills, I shouldn't say whatever ills, because it's very clear he, he screwed up royally in Houston. But what he did in Houston besides that clearly matters more than how he left. And I think for especially for a team like Detroit, the young, especially I think Detroit too is a good place for him to land because there's no pressure there, and nobody's going to care about AJ Hinch at Detroit. He'll get, assuming we get a normal spring training, we'll get someone like Bob Nightingale or an, or an older columnist who will go out to Lakeland, Florida, and sit down with Hinch, and Hinch will do the conversation where he's like, "I've learned so much. I made a mistake. You know, I you know I shouldn't have done what I did, but I've I've learned from it, and I'm ready for this new opportunity." And blah blah blah. You, like. You can set your watch to that column coming at some point in spring training. But it makes sense ultimately because Detroit really is a place where he can just go about his business and nobody will care. Because that Tigers team, is, as much young talent as it has, is not going to be good next year. You know, they're going to still be in that rebuilding phase. Maybe they surprise some folks and they end up closer to like 78 wins than like 70. But I don't know. I mean, like I, I, I'm sure you feel similar. Like there, It was only a matter of time before Hinch and Cora got hired somewhere. And, you know, the fact that they did says a lot about, you know, the culture of Major League Baseball with regards to how it treats or how it values people, you know, and how it values its own in, internal code of ethics and, more, and morality and all that fun stuff. But it's also been very clear for a while that ethics is not really a thing Major League Baseball weighs too heavily when it comes to this stuff. So, you know, yeah, I, I don't know if there's really anything more to say about Corin Hinch beyond like having a deep philosophical conversation about the nature of cheating. So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. As always, Mr. Taylor, we can find you on Twitter at J Taylor. Find me at chase double underscore Thomas. Go check out chase podcast.com. Uh, go leave us a rating and a review on Apple podcasts. If you're an Apple podcast listener, um, more and more content, uh, on the baseball front. Uh, it, it's going to be fun. I think this is going to be an interesting winter. A lot of fun teams to start thinking about and roster stuff like, uh, I don't know. We didn't do really like an end of seasons award thing yet. Do you want to do that next week? Do you want to do an award show next yeah, week? Yeah, let's, let's, once we get them all down, I don't think there's really going to be – is there really any race that's like going to be either difficult or controversial? I think the only question is going to be – An LMVP? An LMVP and maybe NL Cy Young, but I don't really know if there's a strong enough case you can make for DeGrom or Darvish over Bauer. I, mean, I haven't gone over the numbers because, like, quite frankly, like the award stuff is kind of minor to me, it feels like especially in a year where there isn't like a, a Trout versus Donaldson type scenario or like the weirdness that was Justin Verlander versus Rick Porcello. Like this all, like obviously the, the rookie of the year results were very cut and dry. Shane Beaver is going to win the AL Cy Young unanimously. Um, the AL MVP will almost certainly be um, Jose Ramirez barring something weird. Uh, the NL MVP will almost certainly be Freddie Freeman barring something weird. I think that, if you want to talk NL MVP stuff, and I guess we can do this next week, it's it's the conver- it's a de- debate, and it doesn't ultimately matter about Tatis versus Machado, and how that kind of came down. But I think ultimately, it, it I think I think if if Tatis had made the cut, maybe you have a maybe it's a bigger conversation as to whether or not Freeman wins. But I think being Freeman, Machado, and uh, who's the third NL, NL MVP finalist? I don't even remember now. Um, I thought it was. Yeah. Is it not Machado? Machado's one of them, Freeman is the other, and, and Tatis, third is right? Mookie Betts. Mookie Betts. Oh, Mookie Betts, yeah, we forgot Mookie. Oh. We forgot Mookie, which, how do, how do literally I forget Mookie Betts? I know. Um, but I think because Mookie's already won the Sox? AL, we don't, we don't have to do this. We don't <laughs> have to do this. I'm happy for Mookie. He got mm. his ring, I'm happy. Or he got another ring, I'm happy for him. But I think because Mookie's already won the AL MVP, and because Machado, I think, I think voters, in, if they think about Machado, they're invariably going to think of Tatis. I think it's, it's Freeman's to lose. So we, we can certainly talk about it next week. I just, I, I'm just thinking to myself, like, none of these awards seem like they're going to be particularly controversial or difficult to hand out. It's just a matter of kind of what's the justification or basis for any of them. And I think that's, that's honestly more interesting than I think the actual results themselves. Because, 
like I said, for the most part, like you can you can predict how these are going to go, and it's it's neither going to be controversial nor undeserved in any case. I don't think you know if it ends up being Bieber, Bauer, Freeman, and Ramirez, you're going to look at that and go, yeah, that makes sense. Those all of those make sense. You know, no one's gotten no one has gotten jobbed here, no matter what Mets fans or or Cubs fans want to yell about Darvish and Degrom. Like I think, and I got we can obviously dive into the numbers later, but like I, I think Bauer is perfectly legitimate and also young, you know, as much as I disagree with him on many, 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 many things. All right. For that guy up there in New York, John, thank you so much as always, sir. And, uh, we will, we'll figure it out next week. Sounds good. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.